Welcome back to the Mob Mentality Show. My name is Austin Chadwick and co-host is Chris Solution. And today, very excited to have Dave Farley joining the show. So we're here to talk about uh, several great topics like continuous delivery, modern software engineering, uh, hyper agile context, uh, automated testing, TDD, BDD, etc. So lots of great stuff lined up here. Uh, but before jumping into those, Dave, do you mind giving us an introduction for yourself? No, and thanks for asking me on the show. My, uh, so my name is Dave Farley. Um, for people that like Sherlock Holmes, I refer to myself sometimes as a consulting software engineer because it's uh, the kind of humor that I have. But um, but my, I, I'm a longtime software developer, mostly at the kind of slightly more complicated end of the spectrum, building detailed techie things. I ended my career writing software, largely doing high performance finance systems, building exchanges and trading systems and stuff like that. And I'm probably best known as the author of the Continuous Delivery book, and maybe these days as the host of the Continuous Delivery YouTube channel, which has hundreds of thousands of subscribers and millions of views. Um, my interest in software development is really about the things that are durable and that we can kind of have an impact on the way in which we all work and, and allow us to build better software faster. And that's the stuff that really kind of gets me interested and excited in things. Right on, right on. Well, I guess to kick us off uh, in the world of continuous delivery, what, what are you passionate about lately? Uh, what's going on with you? Um, I, I, well, I, I, I think, I, I think one, one of my heresies, I'm, I'm, I'm a natural heretic. And one of my heresies is that I don't think our industry changes as fast as we think it does. Mm. And so I don't think there's anything deeply new that is exciting about continuous delivery. There's some, there's always some nice tools coming along and so on, but the, the, but the, the, the principles are what, what really matter. And the thing that's exciting for me are the way in which continuous del delivery is being adopted increasingly in really quite extreme circumstances. Uh, for, for example, SpaceX are a continuous delivery house. They deliver software to their space rockets and they're updating the software on their space rockets 45 minutes before a launch. That's, pr that's pretty damn cool, in my opinion. <laughs> nice, nice, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I mean, what comes to mind with an example like that is risk, right? You know, so some people might think like, oh, continuous delivery, that sounds great for, you know, you have an e-commerce website where if something goes wrong, you know, not, not too big of a deal. Uh, what, what about, uh, you know, are there ways to do continuous delivery where it's very dangerous and, uh, or ways where it's much safer? And uh, what have you seen being the different trader, differentiator for that? <laughs> there, there are certainly ways of doing, doing it more dangerously. Like, like anything else, mm. human beings are very talented at finding ways of messing things up. <laughs> and so we can certainly find ways in which to, to do it wrong. So if you are continuously delivering software into production that you're not evaluating, not testing, it's not what I actually call continuous delivery, but if you're doing that, you're probably being very risky. But the 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 counter to that is that what we've learned, what we have data to demonstrate through the work of the um, the Dora Group and that's published in the Accelerate book and those sorts of things, is that working in small steps is the safer route. So this isn't about taking more risks. This is about reducing risk, and 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 that starts to be fairly obvious when you think about the way that that it works if we're making change if we're able to make changes 
to our production system in tiny little steps, then each of those tiny steps is simpler and therefore less likely to harbour something nasty. And if it did harbour something nasty, it's probably easier for, easier for us to see it and easier for us to back away from it if we find a problem. So my flavour of continuous delivery is um, largely, as I said in the opening, where my career came from really, was is, is in more complex systems, but really thoroughly evaluating those as far as we're able to before launch, but very quickly and very efficiently, and then monitor the, monitoring them very closely in production. And if we do see a mistake, we're able to pull it really quickly and recover from it. This, it turns out, is quite dramatically um, safer as a strategy than thinking really hard, moving really slowly, and testing big complex changes altogether, and crossing our fingers that there's nothing nasty in there, because there very often is. And so the data says that the faster you go, the less risk, not, not, not the greater risk, which is why SpaceX want to be able to updating their space rockets minutes before a launch. Nice, nice. Yeah, and I think I've, uh, I've definitely seen both worlds. <laughs> uh, early in my career, it was definitely the large batches. And, you know, uh, if you're testing it, you know, manually or even from an automated perspective, it's like something goes wrong and you're like, okay, well, it could be one of 100 things. Let's uh, yeah. dig in and find out which one. And days later, you might find out, right? Um, and I love uh, it. You know, I think there, I think you've said it this way before, Chris, like uh, lean is cathartic, right? <laughs> and so... There is this like Zen that I just absolutely um, am addicted to with continuous delivery and XP and things like that is that if you're doing all these little small pieces, oh, it's just so much more peaceful, right? Because like you said, if something, if the pipeline breaks, you know, or something goes wrong, it's, it's like, oh, it was just the last thing we did, which was really small, which is easy to yes. revert or easy to fix, you know? And so uh, I think it's like the emotions and the objective safety seem to go uh, one and one for me. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so maybe a follow-up question would be, um, what, have, what have you seen uh, out there as far as barriers for people kind of embracing this Zen of the small steps? Uh, what are the barriers that you've encountered? <laughs> I, 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 I think they're, they're fairly significant and, and, as usual, it's it's a people problem. It's 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 not technology. So so we we can do. There are organisations. There are world class organisations that are doing continuous delivery in uh, defence settings, medical settings, heavily regulated industries of all kinds, finance, um, big web shops, massive scale, global scale and hardware devices. I have a client that I was working with for a few years building very complicated scientific instruments. And they've got a whole software stack from, from firmware up. And so there's nothing technical. That, that there aren't any technical barriers, as I can see. One of the companies that I came across was doing continuous delivery with COBOL systems on mainframes. So it's, it's not technical barriers. The barriers are cultural and organisational. So the biggest, the biggest hurdles that I see in certainly, certainly larger organisations, the kind of organisations that these days I tend to consult in, are, are, are largely in three groups. The first one is that requirements are usually wrong. So the requirements process is usually deeply broken and has turned into kind of programming by remote control where the requirement isn't a requirement at all, it's a specification of a solution. 
And the next one is um, uh, a pro problem of coupling. So, so we, you know, people, big organizations with too much money throw people at a problem, divide the problem up into teams, but leave the teams coupled so that they're technically coupled, coupled organizational, organizationally coupled. So one team can't make changes without, uh, without having an impact on another. And then the last one is automated testing. So reliance on manual testing, which is too slow, too low quality, too expensive to do a good job. So if you start addressing, cutting away at each of those things, you start getting effective changes. But certainly in larger organizations, there you start touching on you know, people's sense of security in their jobs and the politics of an organization. If you're a middle manager in a big bank, then you're often judged by how many people you manage if you you know and therefore bigger teams is a good thing from your point of view, uh, not, not a bad thing. And if you are you know, um, working in that kind of environment where, you know, it takes you months or sometimes even years to release software, it seems impossible to imagine being able to evaluate your software and getting an answer back saying, yeah, it's releasable at least once a day, which is my definition of continuous delivery. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and so you know, these things are difficult. And so you're in this game of trying to achieve this, this I would argue, a genuine paradigm shift. This is a genuinely completely different way of thinking about and approaching software development. And you're trying to adopt that in an organization that has grown up and evolved thinking in a very different way. And that's incredibly challenging for people. So, so it takes a long time for people to adapt. adapt. So it's nearly all a people problem. There was a, there was a, there was a great post uh, article in the Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna mess it up by not remembering it properly but it said it said something along the lines of um, the barrier to agile adoption isn't whether it works it isn't the context of you know of the organization it's not you know how effective it is it's it's the behavior of executives. It's 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 the barriers in people that stop us adopting these better ways of working, and that's you know that's true that was true of lean for a very long time. I think lean has largely taken over manufacturing, um, but uh, you know certainly in you know, bigger manufacturing in, uh, industries. But but we, we've still got a way to go with software development. But it's the same kind of challenge, and and it's a difficult one. I, I think one of the interesting things, if you if you don't mind me being philosophical for a moment. Um, one of the interesting things is that I think that one of the things that the software industry has done has kind of stressed and pushed the boundaries of business. So business operated for a couple of hundred years on, on reasonably similar kinds of lines. You can argue that the production line and Taylorism in the 20th century sort of moved thing on a bit and, and so on, maybe. But largely, it was very similar in terms of the way that things are organizing. And then then us crazy people came along building software and we start and, and, and started stressing because that stuff just doesn't work very well for us. Yeah. It, ours is a creative activity and it's a creative technical activity, which is really difficult to do well. And so we stress all of this thing and we've got all, all these people that are kind of grow up in, with regular business and production lines in the back of their heads because that's what they learned worked. And they try and apply that to software and none of that stuff works. So we have to throw all of that out and we have to do something else. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, in universities now, I think business students are, are finally being told 
there's a difference. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so maybe that's where we're at right now as an industry is that all of the up and coming business students are at least have a hint that uh, things are, are different between the disciplines. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it is like a largely systematic problem across many disciplines and power influences and things like that. Um, you know, I've seen kind of grassroots movements work too, but it had, it heavily dealt with influence and influencing up and around. And um, so, so uh, you know, I guess, how would you say uh, you would recommend to people going about trying to change these systems or, or, you know, is it just something that somebody at the top has to make a decision or, you know, strategically speaking, you know, uh, what would it, what would you recommend to somebody that maybe finds themselves in a situation trying to move toward better? It's 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 incredibly challenging. It, it, but the, the, there's a bunch of things that I think that we can do. If you if you'll forgive if you'll forgive me telling a joke that I I, I, I think I think there, there are there are largely so Martin Fowler says you either change the organization that you work in or you change the organization that you work in. <laughs> which is you know a, a good starting point to think about but 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 realistically if you are in an organization if, if i'm right and what we're talking about here is a genuine paradigm shift then by definition what that means is that the rules of the old paradigm don't apply to the new paradigm and the rules of the new paradigm don't make sense in the old paradigm that's what a paradigm shift is and so what that means is that fundamentally to make this change at some point you've got to break the rules of the old system you've got to break the rules of the old paradigm and so if we think about that you know there are there are two strategies you either do it with enough senior top cover that somebody important is going to allow you to break the rules and not fire you or you do it stealthily so that they don't notice, and you hope that by the time that somebody notice important that can fire you notices, um, they realise that what you're doing is actually working. Uh, and basically, those seem like the two strategies to me. It's mm -hmm. uh, and you can you can get the 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 optimistic part of this is that even if you don't get to the nirvana of you know world class performance in what I would term continuous delivery um there are still huge advantages like world-class performance is literally orders of magnitude and more better in in quality and productivity when you start looking at you know, com you know comparable teams that's that's the kind of level of performance so that it's it has a real world commercial impact and that's one of the reasons i think why adoption is accelerating and is, is you know is growing um and you know it affects the bottom lines of the companies that undertake it that's what the state of devops report and the dora group found in their research so if you are making those you know if you're getting to that high ground it's all fantastic and wonderful and people love working in these organizations and produce better software faster and all that sort of stuff but even if you don't do that I think that there are some deep fundamental principles about why this stuff works better than the alternatives. And those principles just work. So even if you do it on a small scale, just within your team, you're going to get better. You're going to be doing a better job than if you don't. That's what I believe to be true. So, you know, if if you'll forgive me being silly, if you're if you're not using source control yet, 
then catch up to the 1980s, start using version control, and your life's going to be better. If yeah. you're not doing <laughs> test-driven development yet, catch up to the 1990s, start doing test-driven de development, your life's going to be better. And so on and so on and so on. And we can kind of, we just start building those things. So, so one of the things that we as individuals can do is start waiting for permission to do a good job from somebody else. Yeah. Take that professional duty of care, that responsibility on board, and we'll do a good job for our own pieces of work. And then we'll try and reach out. We'll try and influence our organizations. We'll try and change them. But we're not going to wait for that to do a good job. So... Just as a simple example of that, if somebody comes to me for an estimate for some piece of work, I'm not going to parse my estimate and give them an option. I'm not going to say, well, if you'd like me to do testing, it's going to take me longer and I'm going to take extra time. Or if you'd like me to, to, to avoid refactoring, I'm, you know, I can cut corners. I'm not going to do that sort of stuff. I'm going to say what I believe it's going to take me to do what I think is a professional job. And a professional job means I'm going to do my damnedest to build high-quality software that I can come back to weeks, months, years later and still change safely. Mm -hmm. And that, that's important, that, that ability to kind of sustain that level of progress. That seems important to me. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to cut corners for a you know one- or two-week gain when I know that over four weeks or years my approach is dramatically faster so I'm, you know I'm, I'm, you know that's what i'm going to go for everybody's inclined to sell themselves short on the short term uh because yes. everyone waiting for that thing is just going to ask for it up front and uh yeah I, I i see that very frequently um i think also uh you know just speaking of mob programming and uh and continuous delivery uh, you know, I, I, I have seen, I, I have seen mobbing in naturally introduce continuous delivery. Uh, I, I was kind of part of that, um, where we went from many bugs down to zero and, yeah. and everything began to get unit tested. And then, and then continuous delivery was like just the next step that made sense. I think organizationally speaking, it, it provided, um, a good sounding board. So it's like, Hey, that does seem like a good idea. Let's keep doing that. Um, and, and so, you know, there are times where if you can work it in a group, you can borrow um, people's courage, I guess, in that sense, right? So, so rather than um, rather than being on your own and and having to deal with pushing back on, uh, you know, somebody asking for something faster, so that you know you you have you're forced to sacrifice your personal integrity, you can lean on your teammates and and get strength from them, so that you can uh, you can do a good job and, and do that together and, and feel comfortable doing it because they, they all agree with you. Because I think often people by themselves will, uh, will feel concerned about what everyone else will think. And, and, and they also are comparing themselves to other developers with more experience than them and, and things like that. So, so they end up making sacrifices all over the place just to uh, look good or comparable. Yeah, I, th I, th I think that's a really good point. I, I've done a lot more pair programming than mob programming. I, um, but um, that idea of the reinforcement of, for want of a better term, the discipline around software development, you know, if, if, if you and I are pairing, 
or working together in a mob and I'm having a bad day, you're going to pick me up and you're going to li- you're going to you know pick up the, the quality of both of our work and vice versa. And and that's important. And and also the, the other aspect of that kind of co- those collaborative ways of working, which which are deeply intrinsically linked to our ability to go fast with quality. Um, the the other aspect of that is the, the creativity that it, it, it espouses. I think we often don't think of our discipline as a creative one, but it deeply is. You know, just you know, just just in terms of you know, definitional terms of word, words, we're, we're we're creating software. It's a creative discipline, but but more than that, you know, it's it's going to challenge us. It, it requires ingenuity, and you know, and. You know, it's it's not creative in the sense of art because it's more difficult than that. It's 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 done within technical constraints as well as being beautiful and elegant and a nice place to work. It has to work and do something useful as well. Um, and so so this is this is a this is a difficult thing. I think this is a hallmark of engineering. I think and I think of engineering as a very creative discipline. So I th- I think that's important. And human beings are at their best creatively when they are effectively playing and having fun and, and, and enjoying one another's company and bouncing ideas around between each other. I, I worked on a project which we, we built one of the world's, if not the world's highest performance financial exchanges using continuous delivery from, from day one. We had so much fun. We were just bouncing. We, we, we did some genuinely innovative things in terms of architecture and approach. We were just bouncing ideas around and having great pleasure in, in what we were doing. I can remember literally coming back from holiday, looking forward to going to work. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, great times. And so I think this is important if we want to do great work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that kind of ties into what we were saying before earlier, where uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, it, it goes with, you know, uh, XP and continuous delivery, you know, this kind of Zen, but also joy, you know, it's the same thing, yes. right? Like if, when you're not stressed out uh, and you're, you're making small changes, it, it's easier to be creative. It's easier to run an experiment. It's easier to bounce an idea off someone. Yeah. Uh, it's easier to think outside the box and attack the problem from a different angle. So I think, yeah, these things kind of, uh, have this uh, feedback loop on itself to increase it or decrease it, you know? And so I, I think that that's definitely true. And uh, yeah, and what you were talking about, Chris, yeah, what's funny is my story with uh, continuous delivery and mobbing is, <laughs> at least in my experience was uh, one for one. So I went from a place that didn't, that had eh, the dabbling in continuous delivery, but definitely not there. Uh, and then what I, I joined a place doing mob programming and the first day, in a language I've never worked in, we made a feature and released it to production. And I was just like losing my mind. I was just like, what is going on here? <laughs> uh, and, and, and you can really see why, because, you know, software is a lot of little changes often. And sometimes like one idea can take you on a course that's just going to be a gigantic batch. Like, yeah. oh, what if we went about this feature by doing this? And it's just like, well, that's just going to cause shotgun explosion changes throughout the whole system, <laughs> you know, like. Why don't we approach it this way where we can keep it small, you know, and, and those kind of things. Um, yeah, so uh, maybe it's a good time to transition topics. Uh, one of the ones you had listed was uh, modern software engineering in a hyper agile context. What are your thoughts here? 
Yeah, so 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 the, the, that flows on very well from what we were just talking about. I I think so. So my my um, I wrote a book recently. If you'll forgive me plugging my book, but it's called Modern Software Engineering. So hence the hence the framing of, of this. But what I was interested in was is what I said in the introduction. I was interested in the kind of principles that. I've been doing professional software development now for over 40 years in what being one one flavor or another. And over that time, I started to perceive some patterns. For, for a long time, I didn't believe that what we would do, what we do is counted as engineering. And I think lots of it doesn't still. But I think that I think that the step to agile was a step in the direction of a more scientific style of thinking. It's agile is largely about experimenting with ideas, inspect and adapt. You try stuff out, see what works, discard the things that don't. And I think that we can take more from science, the the practice of science that as a practical problem solving technique and apply more of that to software development. And I think that when we start thinking along those lines, what we end up is what we'd all call engineering. So I thought it'd be handy to try and define what that meant, to define what that meant in those terms. And that, that's that's what my book about, about. And that's come to deeply inform the way that I think about this, the way that I talk about it, the way that I practice it. So um, the stuff that we were talking about earlier, you know, we were talking about um, things like making changes in small steps. Why does that matter? Well, it allows us to work more iteratively and to gather feedback so we can we can learn from the things that we're doing. And I think that we, we spoke earlier about, you know, production lines not being applicable to software and so on. And the... If we are working in, you know, if we are working in this creative discipline, solving problems that are technically difficult, technically demanding, and so on, then we are always about learning. We don't, we literally don't have a production problem in software because we can clone, however big and complex our system, we can clone it for essentially free because we can just copy the bytes and we can just get that that clone of the bytes, put them somewhere else. We got two copies of the system. So we never have a production problem. All of our problem is about design. It's all about design. And it's all about the creation of, you know, an idea into some executable form that we can run on a computer. So ours is a discipline that's deeply entrenched in learning. So our, so, so first and primarily, primarily, we need to become expert at learning. And if we want to become expert at learning, then, you know, the granddaddy of learning, the, the, the best mechanism for learning that human beings have or have ever had is science. Uh, you know, if you look at kind of human progress almost on any scale, we've existed as a distinct species for around two or 300,000 years. And largely human history was flatlined for two or 300,000 years. And it started ticking up, you know, a little bit. 10,000 years ago, we invented agriculture. Uh, and then, you know, a few hundred years you know, later, we, we kind of got to some of the things. But really, all of the progress has happened in the 20th century and the 21st century. If you there's, there's estimates that we double all of human knowledge every 14 months. It's an exponential growth. So if that's true, what kicked that off? And that was science. That's science that did that. That's the way that we solve hard problems. 
It's the way, you know, virtually everything that surrounds us, the, you know, you, um, the clothing that we wear, the, you know, the, the, the watches on our, on our wrists, the, the, the iPhones in our pockets, the computers that we're talking through are all the products of this kind of engineering scientific style thinking. And so that seems important to me. And so we can apply those learning techniques to software and we get better outcomes. And for that, we need to work iteratively so that we can work in smaller steps, observe the progress that we're making and discard things that don't work and do more of the things that do work. We want to get gather feedback so that we can understand the results of our iteration. We want to work incrementally so that we can step by step evolve the design of our systems, grow them. So that uh, as you were talking about uh, earlier, about, you know, not coming to the system and being scared to change it because we compartmentalize it in a way that allows us the freedom to keep changing it over time. And then we want to work experimentally. We want to try things out. We want to think about controlling the variables, which goes again to working in small steps so that we can see the impact of our changes and so on and working empirically. So discovering what's in production, all of those kinds of things. And then the other side of that, that book is the idea of managing complexity. I would characterize quality in software as our sustainability to change it. I, mm -hmm. I think as a practical definition, that's probably everything Everything else is kind of, you know, we, 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 many of us kind of love code and love writing code and so on. I mean, we have, you know, aesthetics in code and all that kind of stuff. But, but practically, the reason why any of those things matter is because it allows us to understand the code and change it easily. And so in order to be able to do that, we need to manage it. We manage the complexity of that code so that we retain that ability on an ongoing basis to do that. And for that, we have ideas like you know, old ideas that have been around for a long time, but modularity, cohesion, separation of concerns, um, abstraction, uh, reducing coupling, uh, you know, th those sorts of things are foundational to our ability to keep changing code and if we drive ourselves to improve the qualities in code that allow us to keep changing it that improve you know to reduce the complexity of the code that we're building we get better systems and the most profound technique that i know that allows us to do that is test-driven development so if we count um, modularity, cohesion, separation of concerns, uh, abstraction and coupling as markers of quality in code, then how do we put that in? Well, we could be very talented, we could be very skilled, we could be we could care a lot and work really hard, we could be smarter and, and do it that way. And people have, that's one way of doing it for sure. I'm not saying that there was no good code before test driven development, but if we adopt test-driven development, writing the test first be before we've got any code, that starts to impose certain approaches to design upon us because it's really hard to write the bloody tests if we don't have um, code in a certain form. So what attributes of code make it testable? Well, it needs to be modular so that we can test it in pieces. It needs to be cohesive so that the pieces that we have 
are are not deeply coupled somewhere else to some some other bits of data or variables or or elsewhere. It needs to be have a good separation of concerns so we can test these things in isolation of other parts, and it needs to be abstract so that we can we can understand the impact of changes in one place without worrying about their impact elsewhere. And it needs to be loosely coupled so we can pull these things out in order to be able to test them independently of one another. So test driven development amplifies our talent as software developers. That's rather like of the behaviors in other you know in other engineering disciplines it, it, it makes it, it allows us it encourages us even if we're not trying to to do a better job that's a pretty special thing right there and i can't think of very many things that have the same impact i, I i'm an i'm an i'm a largely an oo programmer but you know i've done a lot of programming so i understand you know i understand the use of functional programming and so on but the difference between OO and functional doesn't matter in comparison to test driven development. The, the difference between procedural programming and OO doesn't matter in, compared to test driven development because they don't amplify our ability to make progress in quite the same way. I think that the step to OO is a big step. I think the step to functional is a, is a really useful step. Um, mm. But even so, they're not as big a step as the step to test driven development because that amplifies our talent as developers and and just picking up an you know an object-oriented language or a functional language doesn't do that mm -hmm. um you know we you, but tdd does so test driven development doesn't make bad programmers great but it makes bad programmers better and it makes great programmers greater and so I, I and i say i don't think we have much that's like that and that's really what i mean by engineering what are the kinds of things that we that we're kind of thinking the ideas that we can apply to software that are just going to improve our chances of doing a better job and test room development um, continuous delivery um, optimizing for speed of feedback um, yeah. are some of the tools that allow us to do that and that what they do is that they allow us to work more iteratively and manage the complexity yeah, and i like i like it uh the the essentially the you know tdd is a, a kind of a time it gives you more time back later yeah and you know other things may not do that uh, except for you know maybe like uh design patterns for example may yeah. give you time back later right so like things that things that you can pay yourself forward so that you know by the time you're ready to work on the next thing uh you're um you know it, it kind of multiplies your ability to spend time on things so um you know new abstractions or, or focusing on abstractions can be there as well uh but yeah certain tools are just um maybe how things are organized structurally and uh and so they have different applications but but if you can always find more time for yourself in the future that that is a really great area to focus yeah on. yeah absolutely yeah, and, and uh, this, this, you know, this, this, this stuff matters. Co code, code is one of my other things. Is that I think that we often undervalue just how complicated co software development really is. Coding is relatively simple in some ways. So, so there's a translation of you know an algorithm from from what from you know from from a specification into a programming language. It's not the deeply difficult part. Learning the syntax of the languages is not really the hard part. Sometimes it's frustrating, but that's not really the hard part. The hard part is the way that we think about ideas and manage the information. 
you know, the, the deeply hard parts in computer science are ideas like concurrency and coupling. And, you know, those are just world-class difficult problems. You know, as soon as you have information in two or more places that's changing, you're now into a hard, you know, complexity that's almost on the scale of, you know, quantum mechanics. This is deeply difficult stuff. And we step into that whenever we create a thread and whenever we do a fork you know, in a version control system. So, so we are, you know, as software developers, we are inches away from some really quite seriously, quite deep problems. And so working in ways that allow us to place some bounds, to limit the complexity, to, to, to think cautiously. And, and I think of TDD as one of the techniques that, that reinforces that too. Mm -hmm. um, it gives us that, that clearer picture and it just, it just simplifies the picture uh, a, a little bit so that we can um, just proceed with that a little bit more caution. One, one, of, the one of the things that I see in, in, in people that I think of as, as experts at test-driven development is just how tiny the steps that, that, that people like us take. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm running my test multiple times per minute you know mm -hmm. as i'm developing code and I'm, I'm you know i'm doing a tiny change running the test a tiny change you know and i'm running the test all of the time and getting that little dopamine here of feedback that i know all my stuff's still working yeah yeah for sure yeah i mean uh the introduction for tdd for me in my career was just such a joy like it, it really yeah. turned around my developer experience um yeah that 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 hit that fun uh, you know and then, then you turn it up all the way and you have the tests running all the time or there's different uh, ways to do that but yeah I, I kind of circling back to some of your points earlier right so uh tdd helps you make all those small steps it reduces the complexity and cognitive load and so you're taking each small step yeah. with confidence uh and it's just fantastic and tying also back to continuous delivery so uh it's not. It's no surprise that uh, TDD is a very controversial practice. You know, there's a lot of resistance in the community. But what's interesting is that uh, I think um, continuous delivery, at least from a conceptual standpoint, uh, people are, oh, I, I would love to deliver, you know, multiple times a day safely, right? And it's like, well, how do you do that? Well, that ties right back into, oh, well, TDD yeah. is a great way to do that because uh, if you don't have the automated test there, then uh, it's going to be really hard to do that safely, uh, going back to uh, very, you know, safe versus dangerous continuous delivery. Um, yeah. So I had I had one more follow-up question. I know we're getting close to time, but I thought I'd throw one more at you. Um, so earlier you were kind of talking about uh, uh, modern software engineering uh, in terms of learning and how critical learning is and the scientific yeah. method. And... Um, I was just wondering, uh, it reminds me of something my daughter does, because I'll talk a lot about learning when I'm talking about work, and she'll uh, make a joke with me like, oh, daddy, are you doing learning time? Are you like yeah. getting out arts and crafts? You know, so it has, so learning has this um, connotation in some circles, right? And so if you're speaking with executives or a uh, crowd, how do you talk about learning where it's, um, I don't know, maybe more, um suits the audience, I suppose, you know, so if, yeah. if you have a more austere audience, you know, how, how do you speak about learning uh, to them? <laughs> I, I, I generally cheat. I, 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 I talk about the commercial impacts and those sorts of things because gotcha. they yeah. land. 
So, mm -hmm. so it, 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 if this stuff really works, you know, mm -hmm. and you're, you know, you're a non-technical executive in a big company and you just want software development that delivers, you know, better quality faster, you know, you, you get more bang for the book with your software development. Mm -hmm. Why, why would you care what, 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 what all those techies are doing? What, why would you care? So I try to steer the conversation away from that. It's difficult because I'm a techie, so I tend to, I tend to fall back into mm. using the language. And you're right, talking about learning scares the hell out of some kinds of strange people that I don't understand. And talking about experimentation scares, scares people as well. And, and, and those... I don't understand how you can be frightened of those. When of those, those are what make our world work, you know, mm -hmm. and certainly what makes software development work. So, so there's there's a degree to which you you know you just have the conversations that you can have. And and the good thing is, I I think that one of the you asked me right at the start, you know, what I was excited about in 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 the continuous delivery build one of the things that i'm genuinely excited about is the accelerate book and the dora metrics and the state of devops report this is a um a genuinely scientifically defensible approach to evaluating behaviors in software development teams they've done 50 odd thousand surveys over a period of years of different ind of individuals and they've built up using genuine sociology the, the techniques of statistics that, that you know learned, and questioning and collection of data that they've learned from sociology and they've applied that to our discipline and the findings are astonishing there are things that you can critique about it's sociology it's not physics it's you know it, it, that's muddy difficult hard to experiment there's things you can critique about it but it's the best that we have and it says things like if you adopt the practices of continuous delivery shorthand, my shorthand, they go into it in more detail. If you adopt specific practices, the practice of continuous delivery and apply them to your business, your business will make more money. Your staff will be happier. You'll have greater staff retention. The software that you create, you'll create it faster. Um, the difference between high performers on the metrics that they use and low performers is that high performers will, will spend 44% more of their time on new features than low performers. These are big, important commercial impact kind of territory. So you can have that kind of conversation with non-technical leaders. Nearly always, in my experience, the very senior people completely get it. It's what they want. And the difficult group, the, the, the technologists get it because they're at the coal face and they're often suffering from inappropriate, inadequate approaches to software development. And it's the people in the middle that are the hard part in bigger organizations, at least, because their careers are built around the old model. Mm -hmm. the, the, the senior people are happy to change things because they want the business to do better. The people at the coalface generate actually doing the work want to change it because their lives are miserable. And it's the people in the middle who, who kind of got to a level where they're a bit comfortable. And, that, and that's dangerous that's a difficult thing in, in terms of the you know being able to change this but but i think that the accelerate book and the state of devops report they're all one thing it was the dora group mm -hmm. um uh, which was started off by um jess humble my co-author for continuous delivery nicole fosgren gene kim um and they they collaborated with a bunch of other people um, but they started off this collection of data and this scientific study of what really works and it's the best argument in, in many ways to kind of make a point you don't win arguments with with, with data 
uh, you win him with 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 emotion. But mm -hmm. but but you know it's but you need the data as well, and the best source of data is the Dora metrics, as far as I know. All right. Well, um, you know, I think we're coming to time for uh, the end of the show. Um, you know, we'll, don't worry, we will forgive you for being silly and telling jokes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, any, anything, uh, anything that you want to plug or share before we uh, wrap up? I'll, I'll do a quick plug. I, I, so, so I've mentioned my YouTube channel already. So uh, we've just passed 50 million, sorry, 5 million views. Um, uh, on the YouTube channel. We've got 128,000 subscribers um, and we publish videos every week uh, on topics related to the stuff that we've been talking about here tonight. Um, we, I've also got a training site, site where we sell training courses, courses.cd.training. And um, we've got a summer special offer. So if you buy a course before the end of this month, um, you can get a second course for half the price. So if anybody's interested in any of the stuff we've been talking about, like to know about this in more detail, those are places to go and look. Um, and if you want to know more about the, the engineering stuff, you can check out my Modern Software Engineering book as well. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, to our audience, uh, if you know somebody that is doing things in big batches or they're really stressed out about their next release, that's going to come at the end of the next year and a half. Um, then uh, you might want to recommend this episode to them and uh, so that they can uh, listen in. And uh, with that, you know, please like, subscribe, uh, notification bell, all that. And then uh, we'll see you all next time. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, Dave, for being with us. It's a pleasure. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, everybody.